Okay, thanks for that. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. First Corinthians chapter one, verse two. Can you all hear me? Is it too loud for the ones at the front? You're okay? First Corinthians we'll read only one verse this morning, and it's verse two. First Corinthians chapter one, verse two. <clears throat> Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Call to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Let's, uh, let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your goodness to us. And we thank you for the word which you've given to us that we might look into and we might grow by taking it in to our hearts. Lord, we pray this morning that as the word is uh, shared this morning that uh, you would indeed be teaching every one of us your truths that our hearts would be open to it and that your name might be glorified as a result. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the ability and the, um, the freedom that we have to meet here this morning. We thank you for providing us this place and indeed all the things that we have. We know that all good things come from you. We pray this morning that our attention, our focus, our desire would be solely on you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this, um, this sermon comes as a result of Bible college. Um, <clears throat> got an essay I'm working on at the moment. Spent the last uh, a few weeks reading into it. and uh, So this sermon is, comes as a result of the copious amount of notes and, uh, and books that I've read, although it forms only parts. So just for Pastor Steve, um, you may hear some of my essay this morning. Um, if he marks me bad on this sermon, he'll probably mark me bad on the essay, so I'm just worried about that, but that's okay. We'll do all right. The the topic this morning is about sanctification. Sanctification. I did mention it on Wednesday evening. I gave uh, the guys a bit of taste about what sanctification is and the the ways of sanctification. Um, But this will be a bit more of an in-depth talk this morning. Um, It was well known in my family as I was growing up. I didn't like marching. Marching was not one of my favourite things. When I first started going to primary school, I remember the... I don't remember all the days myself, but there are numerous stories about my antics and my, uh, the things that I got up to when I was at, uh, in primary school. And I went to St Martin's uh, Catholic Primary School in Avondale Heights, and when my uh, parents first brought me there and my grandparents would bring me some mornings as well, um, all the different classes... I'm not sure they do it anymore... All the different classes were all lined up in the schoolyard, row by row. And they would all march before they would go into class. So there'd be this sort of... All the rows would be marching. Well, that terrified me. I didn't like marching. So for weeks and weeks and weeks, I waited, holding whoever's hand brought me, waiting until the marching was all over. And then I'd go in behind. You see, I didn't like marching to the beat of someone else's drum. But I eventually got the courage up. My grandfather apparently said, come on, you can do it. Look at all the other kids that are doing it. So I eventually built up the courage and I 
jump into line one day, realised it wasn't that bad, although marching still wasn't my thing. In grade three, a new music teacher entered the, uh, the school, or, or was employed, who, um, for some reason, I think took a bit of a liking to me. Now, at that stage, there were no drums during, um, during the marching procession that we had every morning, where they'd give an announcement, we'd pray the Our Father, I think it was, and then we'd march our way into, into class. Um, um, he took a bit of a liking to me, and he set up this, this, uh, this thing where, where three of us were chosen from the school to play a snare drum. And we learnt a particular rhythm that we'd play. And it was grade three. And we learnt a particular rhythm and we'd play it and one person would play the bass. And this was meant to make sure that everyone marched according to a proper beat. Uh, well, <clears throat> that was my element because I was now out of the marching procession again and people were now marching to the beat of my drum. That made me feel quite special. You know, when, you know, when, when marching time comes up and, and everyone's out there marching, you know, hundreds of them, they're all marching, and there's three of us that are just playing the drums at the front, and they have to march in line with what we play. That makes you feel quite special. Now, that, that's a little bit like being sanctified, okay? The picture... No, don't, don't, don't give me that face, Eddie. It's, no, let's, just give me a chance, all right? Sanctification is about being set apart, being taken out from, from the rest and treated as something different. Okay? And in this particular case, I was sanctified from the rest of the marches in a sense that I wasn't having to march. I was called to play the drums. Okay? I was chosen to play the drum. Now, I don't play much drums anymore these days, which some of you are very happy about, but from that point of view, I was set apart. Now, the term sanctification comes from the verb to sanctify, which from a dictionary definition means to set apart for sacred use, okay? to make holy or purify, um, or to give social or moral sanction to. Now, the term comes from a Greek word called hagiadzo, which means to separate once again or set apart. Strong's translations always translates it either sanctification or holiness. And the Latin, we get the actual word from a Latin word, sanctus. Okay? And those of you who've been to a Latin Mass before, all of you out there, um, would understand because sanctus or sanctificare and all those sort of words are very commonly used in the, uh, in the Mass. Now, let's have a look at a little bit more about what sanctification is about. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 29 and we'll have a look at the scope of sanctification. Does it just involve people or does it involve a little bit more than people? Exodus chapter 29, we'll look at verse 43 and 44. And it says there, And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. Okay. 
So what's being sanctified here? Well, here the scripture speaks of the tabernacle being sanctified. Now the tabernacle was the big tent that they used to bring around with them. It was like a portable temple they used to uh, carry around. God said he would sanctify that, which means that was set apart for himself, for his purpose. And it was sanctified by his glory. His presence made that particular object sanctified. Then he also says the altar where the sacrifices were laid was also sanctified, was also set apart. And also Aaron and his sons were sanctified, which means they were responsible for prayer, for the, for the religious services and the offer of sacrifices. So from this passage, we see that sanctification involves a sovereign act of God. God chose to sanctify those things. He sets apart either a person, a place, or even a day in Scripture are set apart for him. Now, most of you would know that the Sabbath... God sanctifies the Sabbath, which means it's meant to be set apart just for him. So God can sanctify objects, places, people, days for his glory for himself. Now, the idea is that we wanted to get a picture of what sanctification is in terms of what's the purpose of it. Now, in the New Testament, the Bible repeatedly refers to Christians as saints, holy ones, or set-apart ones, the sanctified ones. And this is not referring necessarily to moral purity, but the fact that we are God's special possession. Okay, We are God's special possession. He's specially set-apart ones for himself. The Apostle Paul, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, so we get a better understanding of it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. It says, But ye are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. Now question, is everyone a child of God in the world? The answer is no. Everyone's a son of God? The answer is no. The world consists of people who are not children of God. But God has his own children, the ones who have accepted Jesus Christ by faith as Lord and Saviour, who have accepted his sacrifice on the cross. God says that you are my possession. You are my children. You have been set apart for me. Now, sanctification is not the same as salvation. It's a very different thing. And it's not the same as justification. See, the Bible says when we are justified, the Bible says that we are declared righteous in God's eyes. There is no sin for a believer. The sins of a believer have been paid for in advance by Jesus' blood. And that's called being just before God. So God makes us just. God also saves us by the power of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. Salvation, we were saved from sin 
the penalty of sin, hell, to a relationship with him and an eternal glory with him. A person is saved because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and that's received once for all time through simple faith. Salvation is a gift that's received and they are immediately declared righteous and just without sin before God by a legal declaration. But then sanctification, on the other hand, is what God then does with us. He actually takes us apart and says, you're mine now. You are my special possession. Because the Bible says we are in Christ, we are set apart because Jesus is set apart. Jesus himself, the Bible says, is sanctified. And because a Christian is sanctified and they are in him, then they are set apart with him as well. Turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 32. We'll see who actually does this. And what role we have to play in our sanctification. Acts 20 verse 32 says, And now, brethren... I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Okay? So we get an inheritance because we are sanctified. Turn to Romans fifteen sixteen. Romans fifteen sixteen says that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. Now, with those two references we just read, is sanctified future, present, or past tense? It's past tense. It's something that has been done to the believer. Every time the word in these passages are used... They occur in the perfect tense, which means it's something that's been completed in the past and the effects remain in the present and into the future. Because the word is also in a passive voice, it means it's something that has been done to us, not something we do ourselves. This is what separates us from other Christian denominations. And if you take Catholics as an example, their sanctification is comes part and parcel with doing works yourself. In other words, you sanctify yourself along the way as well. God does part of the sanctifying, you do the rest of the sanctifying, and then hopefully at the end there's enough sanctification going on that you're going to get into heaven. The difference here with Scripture is that Bible says that when a person is saved, they are fully sanctified. No more to be done. From God's point of view, we are already perfected in his eyes, already set apart eternally. No changing position anymore. The believer is always set apart for the rest of time. Let's look at another two aspects of sanctification and what's involved. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13.
I want you to take note. We're going to read two verses here. I want you to take note through whom sanctification occurs. Through whom? Is it through us? Is it through the Son, the Father, the Spirit, or someone else? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. Who's it through? The Spirit of God. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. First Peter chapter 1 verse 2 says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Once again, the act of sanctification comes through the work of the Spirit. The Spirit has a central role to play in our sanctification, in our being set apart to God. Scripture clearly teaches that a person is sanctified by the action of the Holy Spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit has a pivotal role in our salvation, so he has a very important role to play for us to be sanctified before God. We've already seen Romans chapter 15 verse 16, but let's look at another aspect of it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. Now, we've, we've seen how it's how the Christian is sanctified. It's through the Holy Spirit. Let's have a look at some other aspect of it. What is it in? If you're sanctified, it means you're taken out of one position and put in another position. Now, we need to ask ourselves, where are we once we are sanctified? Okay, Once we are moved into a sanctified position. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 says, Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth... To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. And turn forward to verse 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When a person is taken out of the world, when they are saved, they are taken from the possession of the world, in a sense, rather than being slaves to the world and being in that position, we are now, the Bible says, in Christ. It's a bit like being in a boat. Okay? When, when, when the world was flooded, when God destroyed the world with a the flood, there were eight people who were saved, and they were sitting in an ark. Okay? Now, Jesus is a bit like that ark. In that we are in him. And because we are in him, we are separate from the rest of the world. We are saved because of his work. But that placement is what sanctification is all about. So, the question we need to now ask ourselves, we know it's through who, we know it's where, we know where it is, and we have an understanding of what sanctification is. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, how does it affect our everyday lives? I mean, it's wonderful to know that we've been sanctified. The moment we've been saved, we are set apart for God. 
We are his special possession, but how does it, what does it have to do with my everyday life? What, does it, what, what is the relationship between the finished sanctification of a believer and our everyday walk, our holiness, our everyday um, uh, walk in this world? How do we reconcile, for instance, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14? Now listen to this. This is a very interesting verse. It says, For by one offering he hath perfected. Did you get that one? Perfected. Wait a little bit more. We know the peas have to be care- we have to be careful with the peas. For by one offering, offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Do you and I feel perfect at the moment? Now, why is it we don't feel perfect? The Bible says that he has perfected us forever, and that perfected is past tense. He hath perfected us. And I'll be, I'll be honest with you, I don't feel all that perfect. There's a lot that I need to sort out in my life still. There, is, there, are, there are things in my life I know the Lord isn't pleased with them and, we're, and I'm struggling with, with some of them. I'm fighting every day. What is it that it means that the Lord has perfected us? Well, sanctification, we need to understand, isn't just one thing. It actually has three parts to it. It has three aspects. Okay? And it's because we're in this mortal body still. We're in a state of like almost like a halfway house between one world and the other, where we're in this body. And the Bible teaches that sanctification affects three different phases of our lives. They're all interrelated. The first sanctification is the one we've been already speaking about, where God eternally, by one Thing that's one, one, but one moment in time sets us apart for all eternity in heaven, perfected. So when God sees us in His eyes, He sees us already as perfected from an eternal point of view. The first sanctification, therefore, is what's called positional sanctification. God has put us in a new position, whether we feel like it or not, whether you like the idea or not. You've been put in a new position for God's glory. You are his special possession. Okay, now we're going to look at the next type of sanctification. This is the one that affects us every day. Okay, this is what we call, or what the theologians call, progressive sanctification. So we have, one is you've been put in a new position from an eternal point of view. Never change, like your salvation, doesn't change. You don't lose it, you don't change it, it's done for you, it's finished. It's all, it's all complete. Same with sanctification. Now, this progressive sanctification is now our everyday walk. And we're going to look a little bit at that now. Okay? Turn to 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. First Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. For every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honour. That's an interesting one. Hang on a sec. God's will for us is that 
we be sanctified. Hang on, hasn't God already sanctified me? Well, yes, he has. But this has to do with that I should know how to possess my vessel, this body. This is the vessel that carries around my soul, my spirit, and, and, and who I am. This vessel I need to now learn how to handle, how I need to use for God's glory. The next type of sanctification, this progressive one, really speaks about how the eternal position influences our everyday position. Okay? How one influences the other. And you'll notice in this particular passage, in verse 3, it says, um, you should abstain from fornication. Why does he pick that particular sin? I mean, there's plenty of sins that a person can do. Why fornication? And with respect to this particular thing over here, well, one was probably a problem in those days okay, that he had to address. But the second thing is that God hates fornication. Why? Because it ruins the reality of us being in Christ, being joined to him. It ruins that whole picture. So the Christian, when I said to you, we've been taken out of the world and put in Christ, well, that means we've been joined to Christ eternally. We've been joined to him just like a marriage. When people were betrothed to each other, especially in the Old Testament and in, in, in the New Testament times, once they were betrothed, that was it. You're considered married. You weren't, you weren't trying different people out and then trying to work out whether you're going to be married to them or not. You weren't, you weren't going out with them for a while. Once you were betrothed, that's it. They were considered your husband and wife. It just wasn't consummated. It wasn't formalised. And this is what's happened to the Christian. So when, when, when a Christian or someone commits fornication, what it does, it destroys the whole picture of us being joined to Christ. Because worst thing in, um, in a marriage is betrayal. Worst thing is the complete breach of trust that goes along with fornication. Okay, So anything outside of that, that picture of God, that's why whenever we go to a wedding, okay, we always speak about the wonderful picture of Christ being joined to his church. Now that involves each and every one of us who have called on his name. So there is a picture of, of, um, uh, of fidelity, faithfulness, of unity. Fornication breaks that whole picture. Okay? God hates fornication. On the other hand, God wants to understand that we should live our lives in sanctification. That is, being set apart from the world, different from it, distinct in our lifestyles, in our motives. Why we do things should be very different to the way, the, way the, world, the world does things. The way we do things should be very different from the way the world does things. There is a complete contrast in our lives. And it says here that we should possess our vessels in sanctification and honour. So honour is a big word, isn't it? Honour. How, how, how often do you, do you hear the word honour being spoken of these days? That, that this person is honourable. The only time I hear it really ever mentioned is, is with respect to the, um, the politicians. Will the honourable so-and-so please uh, take the stand? Okay? And, they're not, and most of those aren't considered honourable either. The honour spoken of here concerns a life of personal integrity, allegiance to moral principles, along with it goes a high and noble rank. 
When someone is honourable, they are seen as an example. Someone who is higher. Rank distinct from that of the world. Because we, we belong, as it were, to a noble family. An honourable family. A holy, a sanctified family. And this is a very important point. Recognising that you belong to a royal family, an honourable family, a holy and sanctified family, is the first step to living like that family. If you don't believe it, you will not live it. I'm of the strong opinion that just as we need... Just as we needed to exercise faith in Christ, okay, belief in what he did, who he was, in order for us to be saved, I believe very strongly that now, in order to live this faith, to live this um, sanctified life, you need to continue to believe. You need to believe who now God says that you are. See, if God was able to, to take you from being a rebel, an enemy... And turn you into his son. Why is it Christians when, when we are his children already. When he's already declared us righteous. When he already declares us his family. Do we then struggle with the idea of living like his family. And I think we struggle in our minds to actually believe who we are. We struggle with the, with the concept of knowing that we are set apart from this world. We are in Christ. We are different from the rest of of this world. We need to exercise faith in order to live it. True belief, true trust in Jesus, tr- a true desire to please him will bring along changes and choices that would not have otherwise have been made when a person doesn't believe. So in a nutshell, true faith brings obedience. True faith brings obedience. You really believe, you will really do. You struggle to believe, you will struggle to do. You don't believe, you will not do. This is how we should live in this world. Make no mistake about it. When we sin, we bring shame to the family name. This honourable family, which, which we belong to, this noble family, we bring shame to that family. We dishonour our father. We cause people to bring our Lord's name in vain or to use it in vain. We grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is no small result when we sin. When we sin, we affect a whole range of things, not only for ourselves, but everyone around us. You see, there is a cloud of witnesses that exists, both around us, people whom we affect directly, we affect the Lord, the, the, the Spirit of God and the Father. And then we also need to remember that we are being observed by the angelic realm as well. There are many witnesses. And I've made this point before. That if we saw the, the angelic world around us, we might behave a little bit differently sometimes. If you saw the angel standing next to you watching what you were doing. If you saw the Lord with you. We may just... Say a few things differently. We may make our choices a little bit more differently. We may decide to put him further up the list when we're making our choices in life. 
Being declared holy requires that a Christian live holy. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. First Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 simply says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. A person is then set apart according to Peter that they may live and exhibit the same values and characteristics of the one who called them to be separate to himself. God wants us to exhibit his character. When God declares his children holy, to be saints, to be sanctified, he expects them to live their lives according to the position to which he has called them. He expects them to live or their lives to be an expression of the position which we hold in heaven already. And progressive means just that. It means continual growth. It means change. It occurs from the moment of salvation to the third and last stage of our sanctification. And this is a beautiful aspect of it. When we really think about what sanctification is in our everyday lives, when we think about progressing along this walk that we have, which would be ever onwards and upwards, Okay, it's as if heaven were breaking into this dark world through us heaven expresses itself through us in this world ever thought about that that you are the expression of heaven in this world you are the expression of Christ in this world we represent him as his ambassadors once again progressive sanctification is the effect of the supernatural change that's occurred within us when we are saved, which expresses itself in the physical world. It's a supernatural expressing itself in the physical. That's why, if you can go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll look at verse 1, which once again expresses that same ideal. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. Here is a description of what really progressive sanctification is about. To walk in a way that pleases God is what Paul's hope and prayer is. But not only that, that we would please God in our everyday walk, but that we would abound more and more. And that walk would continue to grow and to mature and to become stronger and to please God more and to be more of an effective person in this world to reach out to those people who are lost, to be an effective witness of Christ's resurrection in our lives, to affect people in this world because we have been affected by God.
for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honour. The Apostle expresses the idea that those eternally sanctified should understand that we were sanctified wholly. God wants us to be completely sanctified, not just from, from our spiritual sins. God wants all of us to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be separate from the world. And this whole sanctification is a lifelong pursuit for each and every one of us. But God wants us to abandon it more and more in our lives. Your consecration in eternity has an effect in this world. We've been given and called to the commandments in the word of God so that we know how to carry ourselves in this world. So that we know how to use these bodies for God's glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit still has a continuing work in our lives to conform us to what we call the image of Christ. It's not our effort that actually gets us Sanctified, It's God's continual work in our lives that allows us to change. But it's the gradual exercise of faith, belief in what God can do in us that strengthens and grows over time. I've always said that faith is the key. And we sing a song, we sing a, we sing a hymn called Faith is the Victory that Overcomes the World. Why is that true? It's true because it's by an exercise of faith that we were saved. We put our trust in Christ. And because we simply trusted him, he saved us. It doesn't stop there. That's just the beginning. True faith then grows and matures and strengthens, just like a muscle you've used for the very first time. And you think, well, you know, have you ever not used your muscles for a while? Ever sat there, like, you know, being bedridden for a while? And, and once you get up, how do your muscles actually feel? When you first use them, they hurt, don't they? You know they're there. You don't have much strength in them. And, the, and I know because my father-in-law is going through a difficult time still at the moment with his, uh, with his physical health. Because he's been sitting down for so long, he struggles to get back on his feet again from the chair. And the doctor said, well, he's, he hasn't got anything wrong with him in terms of illness. What it is, he's been sitting down for so long, his muscles are wasting away. So the, the remedy for that is Move. Move. Get moving. Get the muscles moving and they will build up once again. Or Christian, move. Move. Don't stay still. Because in the staying still, your faith starts to dwindle. It's in the exercise of faith that faith grows. It's the exercise of our trusting God. And God gives us plenty of opportunities along the way to trust him. With one thing after another after another. But if you stop trusting him, who do you trust in after? Who have you got left? You. And then that's what's called a vicious cycle, which gets worse and worse and worse and worse. 
Because the more we trust in ourselves, the more we get disappointed, the more we get disappointed, the more we get frustrated and angry. And where does that anger generally turn to ourselves? No. We want to blame God for that as well. Faith is the victory. Faith in Jesus is the victory that overcomes the world. When we consider the fact that God created and saved us for his glory, that the overwhelming passion of the Old and New Testaments is the honour, the holiness and the glory of God in his name, we understand the importance of our progressive sanctification. Look at it in that light, that we were created for God's glory. We were created to lift up his name. We were created that he might be glorified through ourselves and from everyone else. We have, been called, we have been called to become more and more like God. Now, when God first made man, he made us in his image. Remember that? Which we managed to completely defy. We managed to actually destroy that image that God made of himself in us. The process of sanctification is the progressive restoration of that image. That we learn more and more of him. That we reflect more and more of his image in this world. You see, we're like little mirrors in this world that reflect God's glory. Some of our mirrors are a little bit dirty. They need a bit of polishing. It takes a bit of effort to polish things. The best mirror we can be is when we exercise faith in God and we walk in his ways. The Bible calls us to a lot of things. It seems like there's so many things the Bible asks us to be. It asks us to be the light, shine as lights in the world, doesn't it? It asks us to be salty in our speech, in our, in, in our lives. It asks us to be loving. It asks us to be forgiving. It asks us to be holy. It asks us to be sanctified. It asks us to be like our Father in heaven. But when you think about it, we can only do that. No one else can do it. And if we don't, then no one will. Because you know why? Only light can shine. Only salt can be salty. Only the loved can love. Only the forgiven can truly forgive. Only the holy can be holy. Only the sanctified can live sanctified. And only the children can be like their father. This is our call in life. This is who we are. We have been separated from this world. We might live lives that glorify him. Sanctification is the the very nature of our salvation. It's our new relationship with God expressing itself to the world. This is why there's a fight that goes on each and every day of our lives. And the fight doesn't finish. The fight needs to continue. We don't lay in our arms and, and go to sleep behind a tree. The Bible says that we are to continue with this fight until the end. Why? Turn to Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, For this I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. 
For the spirit lusteth against the, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Scripture declares there's a struggle that exists in each and every one of us, and it's a fight that exists every day, which must be fought to the end. You can't lay down your arms halfway through your life. And we'll look at an example of why in a second. And this is not something that just concerns a few of us here, but it concerns each and every one of us. And I would say there's two dangers that we have in terms of this fight. One, the first danger is to give up because you don't think you can win. Right? I know there are, there are people in this congregation, I know there are plenty of Christians around who feel like giving up the fight. It's, they feel it's all too hard. And they'll say, oh, I don't know if I can do it. I've struggled with this for, for too long now. I don't know what to do, how to do it. And they feel like giving up. That's the first danger, is to give up the fight. The second danger is to believe you won the fight. You don't have to fight anymore. There are some denominations who actually believe that you get to a stage where you don't have to fight anymore. They're so perfect. They're so mature and holy and, 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 uh, and complete in their lives that they don't need to fight anymore. There's no more need to fight. There's no more struggle. There's no more fight. Well, I would say the danger is in both of those. Because if I got to the stage where I thought to myself, I don't need to fight anymore. I'm done. I've won my battles. I'm complete. I'm perfect. Well, that's the, fir- that's the first time I'm going I'm to be exercising my pride, isn't it? And I've fallen back in a hole. Truth of the matter is, if you're not fighting in some way, and, the, and I remember we sang a song this morning, I am a soldier of... Is it? Yeah. I am a soldier in the army of the Lord. <clears throat> if we're not fighting in some way, keeping our guard up, then we've either succumbed to the fight or we've succumbed to our own ego. That's one of the two. This fight finishes when our life finishes on this earth. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 for a moment. I want to show you something. Philippians 3.12 says, and this is Paul speaking, Paul the Apostle, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Was Paul perfect? At this stage, and Paul wrote this letter from where? A a prison in Rome. Now, I checked up some dates, and I found it very interesting. Paul Paul was apparently converted between 33 and 36 A.D., Okay, he wrote this epistle around 61 AD. So Paul would have been a Christian at least 27 years, right? The apostle Paul was a Christian for 27 years when he wrote this letter, 
who still did not believe himself to be perfect. And if the Apostle Paul didn't consider himself to be perfect after nearly 30 years as a Christian, after he had achieved, planted churches, been stoned and whipped and everything else that he'd been through in his life, how does that bode for us? At what point can we say we're laying down our arms and we're perfected? The only thing I gain from this particular passage is that we need to fight on. Not look back at the past because we have a beautiful tendency when we've messed up in the past to live there and stay there. And we can't move on. Even though God has forgiven us. Even though God tells us don't look back, look forward and keep marching on. We like to live in the past. Woe is me for what's occurred to me. Look at what's happened. If you only knew what I've been through in my life, if you knew the struggles and the problems that I've had, if you knew all the things that I've done wrong in my life, you wouldn't be calling me to go forward because I just can't. God calls us not to look back. God calls us to look forward. One of our biggest problems is that we like to continually remind ourselves of every failure that we've ever committed. We like to remind ourselves and use as an excuse for the future the failures we had in the past and the problems we had in the past. God wants us to keep the past in the past. You can't affect the past. We can't change the past. But you can change today, which will affect your tomorrow. It's a shame that many Christians, when they first become believers, especially if they've come from an immoral background or lifestyle, have great changes in their life. And those big sins, they don't do them anymore. But sadly enough, for most Christians, that's where it stops. The big Christians, the big uh, problems or the big sins are taken out of the way and then there's no more struggles to get rid of all the smaller stones that are all left all over the place. God wants us to clear the land completely. Not just the big stones like they, they dug out of my block over there in Epping. God wants us to take out the smaller stones and the smaller and the smaller. God wants to continually have or be in a process of clearing land and making that soil so perfect that every time he drops a word, every time he mentions something in our ear, we hear it. It doesn't bounce off a rock and go somewhere else. The final stage is the glorious stage. The first stage was being set apart when we were saved. The middle stage is where we're in now, in our progressive stage where God calls us to a greater walk. The final stage, it says, if you look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now, we, now are we the sons of God. Right? Not in the future. We are now the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's the final stage. That's when there's no more fight. That's when the fight's over. That's when the flesh that we struggle with, our own egos and desires and our own problems, okay, are gone and vanished, are finished. No more fighting, all at peace. Everything complete 
It's when we see our Lord and we're going to be like him. That's where the temporal and the eternal are joined and become one. So what's the, what's the conclusion? Well, I hope you've taken away with you an understanding of what sanctification is about. And second, I want, you, I want to remind you to have faith. Have confidence in God. Not confidence in yourself. Have confidence and belief in God. That you can win this walk. That we can live sanctified and holy lives in this world. I know it's our deep desire to do that. I know. And I know the frustration we have with ourselves. But don't let the frustration, don't let the, the, the anger that you have with your own weaknesses overcome the joy of living for the Lord. Don't lose sight of the wonderful salvation we share and the position we now have. Continually remind yourself day after day who you are. Remind yourself of that. What your position is, what's been done for you, what's been shown to you at Calvary and who you are today. What your position is. Remember, God always finishes what he starts. God never gives up halfway and we shouldn't either. What he started in each and every one of us will be complete and final one day. But until then, the challenge is to walk and keep on walking. Keep moving. Keep expressing and using your faith. And allow the Spirit of God to work in our lives. Don't forget, we have God's Word, which helps us to understand what the, what the mind of God is. Helps us to understand and helps in our struggle for everyday life. Remember, we have a Lord who is interceding for us each and every day when we mess up before our Heavenly Father. When the fight seems hard, when the road seems long, remember the captain of our faith, who has been there before us, who conquered every one of those things and who understands the struggles that we go through he was tempted in every way like we were tempted but he never succumbed if he can do it he calls us to do the same and we have him with us every step of the way if you don't know the Lord this morning if you don't know him you're not sanctified you're not set apart in his eyes you belong with the common things of the world. The things which will one day be totally destroyed. The things which will one day be judged and sent to hell. If you are in this state, you are reckoned an enemy of God. An enemy of God. God calls you and wants to separate you to himself. To have a relationship with you. Don't wait another day. If you don't know if you have a relationship with Jesus this morning, don't wait. Why would you wait? There is no better place to be than on the road, walking along this road with Jesus Christ. The one who loves us, the one who understands and cares for us, the one in whom we exist. And we live and move and have our being. God bless you all. Thank you.